0: I hope you have your Bibles with you, and that if you do, you will turn in them to Matthew chapter 6. You'll find Matthew 6 on page 811 in the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs. If one of those would would serve you this morning, I would invite you to use one of them. Matthew 6. I'm going to read it for us now. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. These are the words of the Lord. On the first Palm Sunday, Jesus the Christ entered into the city of Jerusalem to the sounds of praise. As we read already this morning, the people shouted, Hosanna! Which means, save us, son of David. They laid palm branches and cloaks on the ground. They proclaimed him as king. They blessed him as the one who had come in the name of the Lord to bring salvation to his people. And Jesus was and is the king. He is the king of the unexpected kingdom that Matthew writes about in his gospel. He is the one who left behind heaven's throne to be swaddled in a lowly and meager birthplace, to be raised by a poor family in a backwater town, to be an itinerant teacher with nowhere to lay his head, to disciple men and women who didn't understand the things that he taught them, men and women who would betray and deny And abandon him. He came to be crucified for all of his people. And yes, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was part of the whole unexpected nature of the revelation of the king and his kingdom. It was an unexpected scene in one sense and yet in another a very expected scene. We'll get to Matthew's record of this event in the months to come but we read of it in Luke's account already this morning. But before that triumphal entry on that first Palm Sunday, there were many hours of teaching from this king. Teaching that led to the polarizing responses of the crowds. Some in the crowds on that first Palm Sunday that shouted praise, and perhaps some of the very same people less than a week later, shouting for his death. And so the unexpected kingdom was built on the life and ministry of the king of that kingdom, a ministry that included teaching and preaching that was just as unexpected and even shocking at times as his passion, as we often call it, that we celebrate. And remember, during this holy week that begins today. The passage before us this morning begins a new section of Jesus' great sermon. It is a transition from the six you-have-heard-it-said statements that precede it, where Jesus had taken careful and precise aim at the incorrect and (laughs) twisted teaching of the law from the Jewish religious leaders of that day teaching where he clarified in each of those six, you have heard it said, statements that the heart of a person transformed by the power of God alone is what determines kingdom access, not just external conformity or performance as the Jews had mistakenly thought. And he ended that section, or in our Bibles today, the chapter 5 with this startling phrase in Matthew 5:48 you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect he says essentially there you must be perfect like the father in order to gain access to my kingdom I want to point you to a little bit earlier there in verse 46 where jesus says if you love those who love you what reward do you have you see seeing that section of verse 46 of chapter 5 actually helps us get a little bit of a running start into today's passage jesus is as i've said before as we've seen already and we'll continue to see throughout our entire study of matthew he is the master teacher And so in verse 46, he speaks of rewards, and in our text for today, he's going to build on that a little bit. So it's as if he could have said at the beginning of chapter 6, speaking of rewards, and then moved on to the next section. And so the next main section of Jesus' great sermon, starting in our chapter 6, now includes three when you statements, as I call them, each of them. Each of those statements repeated in its section. You'll see this in our text for today in verse 2, when you give, and then again in verse 3, when you give. If you look down at the passages that are going to come in the coming weeks, you see in verse 5, when you pray, and then in verse 7, when you pray. Similarly, in verse 16, when you fast, verse 17, when you fast. And so Jesus is now moving from teaching about the correct kind of heart-based righteousness to teaching about the correct application of that righteous living. And so in these next three passages, we will see three recurring themes. We will see secret versus public righteousness. We will see the reality of kingdom rewards. And we will see the sad reality of Pharisaic hypocrisy. And I've sought to tie them all together with this phrase that you see on the title slide, private practice. So for the next few weeks, we'll be looking at Jesus' teaching on private practice. Because in these next three passages, Jesus will identify three specific acts of religious devotion. Righteousness. That was regularly practiced in the context of Judaism at that time, and then he's going to say the same thing about it every time. He's going to say, essentially, better for you to practice your righteousness privately for God's glory and miss out on some potential earthly reward than to lose eternal kingdom reward through hypocritical public displays of righteousness. And so in each one of these passages, Jesus identifies an area of religious devotion and righteousness that is good. Giving, prayer, fasting, these are good things. And that's what's different about this next section that we're going to be into for a few weeks Uh, from the section preceding it. In the previous passages, in chapter 5, Jesus was calling out sin, sinful hearts of the Jews that they had, even though they thought they technically followed the law. But in this section, Jesus calls out righteous acts that turns out were stained with sin. Giving, prayer, and fasting. This week we'll talk about giving, Next week will be prayer, and then my dad will preach to us the week after that on fasting. Isn't it amazing how Jesus weaves all of this together with masterful logic and a beautiful connection? He is the master teacher. And once again, I point you to the fact that these verses in chapter 6 point back to the beginning of his great sermon, where we find at the beginning of chapter 5 the Beatitudes, these blessings for his kingdom people, where he speaks of humility, which has to do with our passage before us today, where he speaks of righteousness, where he speaks of meekness and a Godward heart rather than a heart focused on this world, and then the promise of heavenly rewards that come to those people. And so this section before us today starts with one broad statement and then three examples that follow. Today's passage, as I've already said, the first example is giving. Now, the matter of giving in our New Testament, New Covenant, Church Age context is a little bit different than the kind of giving that Jesus was specifically referring to, but the core issue is still the same. What Jesus is going to be getting at is that God's people giving of their monetary resources for the sake of those in need is is what he's talking about here. And so the topic is giving, and it's just as applicable to us today as it was to his original audience. However, the broader point of this whole three-part section is, as it has been, true kingdom righteousness. And so giving in the text today is just one context in which this private practice righteousness is lived out. And then the other two in the passages that follow. So let's take a look at these two kinds of giving that Jesus describes. The first of which is giving for self-glory, which leads to no eternal reward. I'll read again for you verses 1 and 2. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 1 gives us the broader point of the next 18 verses. He's saying that a public practice of righteousness will bring its own reward in this life, but not in the next. Now I want you to notice something vitally important in this text. In the middle of verse 1, Jesus includes a crucial phrase. He says, beware practicing your righteousness before other people and then says, in order to be seen by them. And that is a very important distinction, because you may recall in chapter 5, in verse 16, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And So it might seem like chapter 5, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 contradict each other. But once again it is not the key is not the mere act or lack thereof that matters most it's the heart behind what is happening. It's practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen. It's not simply practicing your righteousness publicly. What Jesus is calling out here is not simply doing good in public. What he's calling out is described in verse 2. He's calling out, sounding the trumpet as you perform whatever religious devotion or service God is calling you to, certainly in this example, including giving. Now there's a little bit of scholarly debate as to whether or not Jesus was calling out an actual practice that was taking place in the context of the Jews at that time, people in the synagogue perhaps announcing through a literal trumpet what they were doing, or maybe... He was just making an extreme sounding illustration to underline his point. The practice of giving to the poor was highly regarded as one of the key acts of devotion, religious devotion at that time. And in fact, scholars that you could read will argue that these three, giving, praying, and fasting were the most highly regarded three at that time. And certainly, the Old Testament is full of instructions and exhortations regarding the importance of giving to those in need, providing access to means for the poor and destitute. You cannot read your Old Testament from beginning to end with any other impression. And as a result, there was built into the Jewish religious community systems and structures for poverty relief that the synagogues organized and facilitated. And so the members of the faith community would contribute to the synagogue, in part, to fund the efforts aimed at relieving the poor. And some scholars will tell you that it's likely that larger donations... Notable donations were made public. In fact, a a non-inspired apocryphal book states that the assembly shall proclaim acts of charity. And so perhaps this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about sounding the trumpet. Now, there's certainly potential for good in announcing a notable gift. Scripture does call us to give honor to whom honor is due. But Jesus sees all. And he knows that, unsurprisingly, there were some whose giving was only a performance. That is why Jesus uses the word hypocrites in the passage. I think sometimes we think of hypocrisy. Now, before I say that, we have kids in the room this morning, more than usual. Kids, have you ever heard the word hypocrisy? Have you ever heard the word hypocrite? Now raise your hand, if you, be honest, if you know where that comes from. the word comes from. Good on all of you for being honest. Good job. We sometimes think of hypocrisy as simply referring to being deceitful, and deceit can certainly be a part of hypocrisy, but plainly and simply, the idea behind hypocrisy is the idea of performance. Kids, here's where it comes from. In the original Greek, the word referred to a theatrical actor. Someone you see on stage, or in our day, we've got movies and TV shows more often than stages. An actor. And Matthew actually uses the word several times in his gospel in connection with the religious leaders whose religion was about an appearance of self righteousness, not love for God and others in their hearts. And so it is possible that Jesus is metaphorically speaking of. Literal public announcements of those whose donations were noteworthy when he speaks of sounding a trumpet. It's possible that there was even a, this was even a literal thing, some kind of heralding. But it's also possible that there weren't public announcements made and that Jesus is simply speaking in extreme terms to jolt his listeners into understanding his point. But it doesn't really matter which one, does it? The point we get. Jesus is moving from these true acts of righteousness that stem from the heart to the application of true kingdom righteousness, and it's still all about the heart. You know, I have to wonder how this verse might apply. I want to be careful here. I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this, but how it might apply to plaques or nameplates that you might see in some churches about something being made possible by the donation of so-and-so. You might see it on a stained glass window or an organ or a wing of a building or whatever it might be. Such-and-such was donated by so-and-so. Now, it's probably best for us if and when we see something like that. We don't have anything like that in this church building, but if we see something like that, just assume the best and assume that it is an effort on the part of the leadership of that church to show honor to whom honor is due. But is it possible that we too could do this very same kind of thing? Potentially being especially willing to make a sizable donation in order for selfish or self-glorifying or self-righteous reasons? Of course it's possible. But as Jesus has said, a public practice of righteousness will bring its own reward in this life, but not in the next That is what Jesus ends verse 2 with. I say to you, they have received their reward. It's as if he's saying, You want to make sure everyone knows what a generous giver you are? Then that's your reward. Everyone knows what a generous giver you are. Good for you. And that's kind of a parallel with the the end of verse 1, right? The summary section, or the summary verse of the whole section. If you practice your righteousness in order to be seen by them, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You will have no reward from your Father in heaven if you practice your righteousness publicly in order to be seen by others. And then in verse 2, if your giving is about people noticing how much you're giving, that's the reward you get. And you see this in verse 5, which we'll look at later. They love to stand and pray at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They have received their reward. See that in verse 16 as well. They disfigure their faces so they can be seen by others. They have received their reward. This is clearly the theme of what Jesus is getting at in these three sections. You could almost preach all three of them together. And that's what is at the heart of the second kind of giving that Jesus describes, which is giving for God's glory, which leads to an eternal reward. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, instead of a public practice of righteousness that brings its own reward in this life, but not in the next, Jesus' kingdom people know that a private practice of righteousness will bring a reward in the next life, even if they don't see the results in this one. So instead of giving for the glory of self, Jesus calls for a heart of giving that is concerned only with the good of the beneficiary of that giving and of the glory of God. And Jesus uses a kind of a fun turn of phrase that communicates this, that kingdom righteousness will be characterized by giving that is so unconcerned with any kind of recognition that it doesn't even realize what it's doing. That's what he's saying when he talks about your left hand and your right hand not even being aware of what the other is doing. Here's what I mean by this. When my wife Kate is teaching a brand new singer, I sometimes hear her in her studio in the front of our house trying to describe to this brand new singer what it should feel like when their voice is going higher or lower. For a novice singer, it takes some effort just to exercise your vocal folds and the surrounding muscle tissue in a way that makes the voice rise and fall in pitch. But for Kate, who is so proficient in singing, she doesn't even realize what she's doing with her voice most of the time. Now, certainly one piece that she sings may be harder than another, but you get the point. It's so normal for her, this exercise of the vocal folds, that going from a C to a G in the course of an ordinary song doesn't even require any concentration. She just does it. She isn't even really aware of the fact that she did it. The same thing could be said for Amy Lee on the piano and Allie Denton on, with her feet on the soccer field and all of us who've driven cars for a long time. We're almost totally unaware of what we're doing because it's so natural to us. I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus wants us to go for when it comes to our giving. Like a piano playing right hand that doesn't think about what the left hand is doing, so should our giving be. It's so natural, so common for us that not only are we not making it a big deal to others, we hardly even realize we're doing it ourselves. And the beautiful thing about giving in secret is that, as he ends this verse 4 with, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I'd ask you to turn back into your Old Testaments to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. This is a familiar passage to some of you perhaps, but I want you to see it in light of what Jesus is talking about here. Give us some theology of the Father who sees in secret. Verses 1 through 16. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. when as yet there were none of them. My friends, the one true God sees all. Nothing is hidden from him, whether good or bad, whether in the light or in the dark, whether at the beginning of your life or at the end. And while that truth brings terror, as it should, to his enemies, it brings comfort to his children to those who are loved by him, to those who serve him in secret. Because since the father knows and sees all, his children don't have to worry about what other people think about their giving. They just give because they love God and they love his people so much that they can't even imagine what it would be like not to. There's another concept we need to observe here, and it affects really the next three passages. The word reward occurs three times in this passage. But in the 18 verse section that this passage starts, the word occurs a total of seven times with the phrase, your father who sees in secret will reward you. It occurs in every one of them. So clearly this is an important theme in Jesus' teaching before us. It pertains to the giving in this passage, it pertains to the prayer in the next passage, and it pertains to the fasting of the final passage. The matter of eternal rewards is evidently very important. And this topic is not exclusive even to this section. Jesus talked about rewards already in his Beatitudes. We saw it in the final passage of chapter 5 earlier, and it's going to occur again in chapter 10 multiple times. The other synoptic Gospels have some parallel passages with the same theme occurring. The epistles, the letters of the apostles, contain teaching on rewards as well. But in this text before us, our text today, Jesus doesn't describe what he means exactly by reward. So it's a little challenging, right? You may have wondered, is it okay for me to be motivated By the fact that God says I'm going to be rewarded by giving in secret instead of public? Have you ever struggled with this? Ever wondered about this? I know I have. I think I sang a little too loudly. There are some fundamental problems, however, with the thinking behind struggling with confusion or discomfort with how to think about rewards in relation to righteous living and acts of devotion or service. I think part of the problem with that struggle that we have, that I have had, is kind of a base, problematic view of God, as if God is this grumpy old grandpa whose rewards and gifts are given reluctantly, and so we don't really want to kind of reserve and act like it's not really that big of a deal to us. But Jesus taught that God loves to bless his children. He loves to give gifts to his children. And so it is okay for us to have a holy, proper longing for him to reward us, for him to give us gifts, for him to be pleased with us. He does love us. He is pleased with us. He loves to reward us. I also think part of the problem with thinking along these lines has something to do with a wrong view of what gifts from God might look like. As if a reward from God is something as trite as a silver trophy or a gem in a golden crown. Some of you know very well that a reward from God, a blessing from God might be the trial of a refining fire. It might be some form of suffering without which you would never know God as well as you do now. It might be a temporary loss that will lead to an eternal gain. It might mean picking up your cross and following Jesus for the joy that is set before you. C.S. Lewis once talked about the fact that some people think that striving for rewards from God turns us into some kind of mercenary. But Lewis argued, while you would call someone who marries for money a kind of mercenary, to marry for love isn't mercenary at all. In fact, it's natural and beautiful to want the reward of a life of love that comes from a devotion in a marriage. And so, friends, I think the answer is it is or can be a good thing to want and to be motivated by the true and eternal rewards of the king in his kingdom. Certainly not in a selfish way, certainly not in a temporal way. If you start messing around with that, you've got it all mixed up. I think the best way to think about these rewards is described by the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God the kind of reward that kingdom people of God look forward to my friends is an eternal reward not the kind of reward that hypocrites get which is the mere praise of men it is a reward that not only lasts eternally but is but is of an eternal quality It's not just eternal quantity, it's eternal quality. In other words, it's infinitely valuable, it's infinitely beautiful, it's infinitely worthy of every pang of hunger from a secret fasting, worth every moment of agony in a private prayer, worth every penny given to ministry unbeknownst to anyone else. And you know why? Because the reward is is the fulfillment of holy and truly righteous desires that exist in the hearts of Jesus' true kingdom people, which is the desire for an eternal relationship with God. A desire for righteousness. A desire for relationship with Jesus. You know, the kinds of rewards that Jesus is talking about can include temporary Earthly rewards. We know that God gives blessings to his children, material blessings, emotional blessings, spiritual blessings in this life. But in the context of the rest of Jesus' teaching, in the context of the rest of the New Testament, and in particular in the context of what I referenced here in Hebrews 12 regarding Jesus' motivation, I think what we should think about here is the idea of laying up treasures. In heaven. Because if you skip down just a few verses to verse 20, which we'll get to before long, Jesus calls for that very thing lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. That is what Jesus was doing in his ministry, in his life, in his sacrifice. In death, he was setting aside the temporary and material rewards of earthly life for the sake of the reward to come, the joy to come, when he was seated and is now with his Father in heaven. Christian friend, do you know you are destined for the same place? You're not God. You'll never be God or a God, but you are united with Christ. And one day, your identity as united with Christ, your identity as being seated with Him in the heavenly places, as the Apostle Paul calls it, will be fully realized. You will have no need for faith anymore. You will be there, you will be with Him. So I wonder how many of us would care less about earthly acclaim and earthly acknowledgement and earthly reward if we had a better grasp of what this means. To know that our eternity is characterized by being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Oh, my friend, grasp onto that and never let go. My friends, this is what I mean. The ultimate reward that Jesus' kingdom people receive is Jesus himself. That's what it's about for true kingdom people of God. This Jesus who was lauded and praised on Palm Sunday rightly for being the son of David that had come to save his people. This Jesus who was scoffingly and ironically, but accurately declared to be the king of the Jews. This Jesus who was crucified and buried, but then rose victorious over sin and death. And this Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of his father, reigning and ready to come for us soon. That is the Jesus of this kingdom, who is our greatest reward? Jesus Himself. If heaven would be heaven for you without Jesus there, what does that say about your standing in His kingdom? The righteousness of the kingdom isn't characterized by self-promotion and pride, but a humble desire for God to be glorified. And this is what characterized Jesus. There was a kind of public trumpet-like heralding of the coming of the righteous one into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But in another way, his coming and his whole life was characterized by a trumpetless righteousness, a humility, a servitude, an others-focused, God-focused ministry. Now, as I've said earlier, I don't think this passage is directly, mostly about giving in its act as much as the broader principle of the private practice of righteousness. And yet, Jesus does give instructions on giving here. And we do need to heed them. So I have three principles for you on giving from this text that I'll give to you rather quickly. Number one, give regularly. Give regularly. Or you could say even faithfully. Notice what Jesus says in verse 2. When you give. He says it again in verse 3. When you give. It's assumed. This is assumed in part because this was a practice that the Jews were doing, but for our purposes, we need to notice that. It's assumed that the people of God are giving. And so if you are not faithfully and regularly giving to the work of the ministry in your context, that's something you need to do. The people of God are characterized in part, among other things, as those who give to the needy who give to the work of the ministry who give faithfully number two give humbly i don't feel like i need to say a whole lot about this i don't think i've ever seen a single one of you make a big ordeal out of your giving or even heard any of you even talking about it but maybe for you a simple reminder is needed your giving is not about you It's about the glory of God. It is about the rewards that he will give you in an eternal quality and quantity. And it is about the people that you're giving to. So give humbly. The people of God are characterized as those who give for the good of others and the glory of God. Finally, give to the needy. So perhaps when you see Jesus speaking of this assumed reality, giving to the needy in verse 2 and 3, maybe some of you need to be more aware of who is needy in your life and in your context. People whose situation is not as privileged and materially blessed as yours. Maybe you need to be more sensitive to the possibility of God calling you to be used to extend his grace and favor through your means to someone who is needy. So I would just call you to be on the lookout. Be aware of the people in your life. Know what's going on in the lives of the neighbors on your street or the families in your kids' school or your coworkers' lives or, yes, especially for those, in the needs, those who have needs in this church. The people of God are characterized in part as those who give to the needy. They give regularly, faithfully, they give humbly for the glory of God and the good of others, and they give to the needy. And so, we must practice kingdom righteousness privately, and we will be rewarded greatly. But remember, this doesn't mean not to let your light shine before men so that people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is something clearly Jesus wants, but private practice in terms of your heart is what Jesus is going for here. Not practicing your righteousness so that others may see you and glorify you. No, practice your righteousness. For your own glory, for the sake of the performance, for the show that you want to keep up in your context so that others will notice you, your reward will be temporary and ultimately meaningless. You'll have gained some acclaim from some people in your life, but in the end, God who sees your heart will know the difference between righteousness for his glory and righteousness for your own. And my friends, as a final Reminder of hope to you in this. Jesus' final trumpet will sound one day soon. It is coming. And when we hear it, it will cause our hearts to leap for joy because our greatest reward will be here. But until then, we strive by his grace and in his strength to live out lives of righteousness with an eternal perspective and eternal goals, not earthly and temporal motivations and methods. So the ultimate reward that Jesus' kingdom people receive is Jesus himself. And so pursuing Jesus as our greatest treasure, as our greatest reward, is a good thing. In fact, it's the best thing you could do is pursue Jesus himself. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we give you praise. We give you thanks for your word. We're grateful for this instruction that we need. Instruction that convicts and reminds of truths we already know. And we thank you most of all that you have done this for us already. You lived, Jesus, this kind of private practice righteousness throughout almost all of your earthly ministry. You certainly received some public acclaim and now get a ton of it as you deserve, but throughout so much of your life in ministry, it was quietly, it was without people knowing, it was to the lowly, and so we praise you. We, we acknowledge and glorify you that you are this perfect, righteous one that we look to. And we now also ask for grace to live this way when it comes to our giving, that we would give regularly, that we would do what it takes to make sure that we're not forgetting and that our hearts would be properly aimed as we do, not as some sort of religious duty that we've got to make sure we do or make sure I give in the basket so people will notice I'm doing it or even though some of us do it online, making sure we do it just so it seems like we're doing our duty, but that our hearts would be aimed at your glory and the good of those in need. And as we give, as we give regularly, humbly, and to those in need, help us to do so in such a way that is so natural to us that it's as if our right and left hand don't even know what, what the other's doing. And that it would be privately practiced so that we would be shooting for, aiming at eternal rewards that you love to give us, not the earthly rewards of the acclaim of others. Lord, we're going to have an opportunity now, in these next several minutes here, to give. I pray that as we do so, that we would do so with hearts like this, so that you would be glorified, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please?